0: Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea?
1: Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet.
0: Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability.
1: Poetry, anxiety, and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.
0: Welcome to episode 29 of the Anxious Poets podcast. My name's Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. And today I've got a guest with me. His name's Jack. He's black and white with big brown eyes. He's sniffing at everything at the moment. And he's our new Border Collie. He's a year old. And the theme of today's podcast is the friendship of dogs. And I'm going to explore this in all kinds of different ways. Um, Unfortunately, Jack can't speak, but he'll certainly be part of this um, by his very presence and by the words that I've written about him and his predecessors uh, as our pets and companions. I don't even like to use the word pet somehow, because I think they're much more than that. They're parts of your family. Helen Moore has a great book, The Sheffield Poet. Um, It's called Never Leave the Dog Behind, and she says this. Dogs specialise in getting on with humans. They've been selectively bred for this over the past 50,000 years or more. They can even mimic human actions as well as a toddler can, reacting to our social cues. No wonder we live in a world full of dog lovers, a world where many of us count dogs as members of the family. Well, that's certainly true of us. Jack is definitely a member of the family. Um, he's, he's moving his head in that fantastic way when he knows he's being addressed. They sort of cock their head on one side and their ears prick up. Um, I watched last night. Oh, and the other thing to say is today is the summer solstice, midsummer's day. A Midsummer Night's Dream, the Shakespeare play, was written about this day. And traditionally, it was seen as a day of of magical occurrences. If you remember Midsummer Night's Dream, there's two couples that stumble uh, into the woods, partly because they're running away from an edict of one of their fathers as to who should marry who. And um, they stumble into the forest, which is governed by the spirits oberon and titania and their servant puck um and they are subject to all this magic that goes on and then you have the, the the rude mechanicals the workmen in productions i've seen they're always brilliant and once we actually did our own with the drama group that we used to run and tom my son played bottom who is the head of the rude mechanicals and um at one point, is transformed by Oberon into an ass, uh, or a man with an ass's head. And and he, he um, bamboozles Titania into falling in love with him. Um, so it's this whole... It's like an acid trip, this crazy situation. So Midsummer's Day was considered a time of magic. And I think one of the things I'd like to argue in this podcast is that animals bring a particular magic with them. And um, last night I was wondering what to watch. Wilma and Lara were watching something and I'd been watching the cricket and and so um, I thought, what will I watch? I know, I'll, I'll watch a film that I've watched before that I really love called The Call of the Wild based on Jack London's fantastic book um, the that was written, ooh, when was it written? A long, long time ago. And... Um, I can't, I can't see when it was originally written, but it's, oh, 1903, 1903. So, uh, a long time ago. Um, but it's about a dog that starts off as a domestic dog and ends up as the head of a wild wolf pack. Um, and it, it charts his journey. And there's a recent film, a Disney film, with um, Harrison Ford as the main character and this incredible dog, book. And it was partly this story that inspired me to get this new border collie, and and let me just read you the end. So he he finally is released into the wild in the Yukon, up in Canada, where the gold rushes were, and he goes beyond human habitation, um, and he breeds with a wolf and and found his own pack, and um, becomes legendary among the folk out there. And he ends, this is the final paragraph. But he is not always alone. When the long winter nights come on and the wolves follow their meat into the lower valleys, he may be seen running at the head of the pack through the pale moonlight or glimmering borealis, leaping gigantic above his fellows, his great throat a bellow as he sings a song of the younger world, which is the song of the pack. He sings the song of the younger world and that's what I called the um, the poem that I wrote we we had a fantastic border collie and I'm gonna read a poem about him soon um, we've had four all together and the second one we got the first one was called angel um, she was an, almost all white with a with a black markings on her head um, and There's magic in that story. So my daughter, Eva, my eldest, always wanted a dog... ...but was allergic because she got terrible eczema. And so we tried all sorts. We even tried taking her to see a a labradoodle... ...which meant to have walnut fur. But she reacted to that. And then I had a dream when she was about ten, I think. I had a dream that I was standing at the bottom of of a hill... And this white border collie came bounding down the hill with a black face and sort of jumped into my arms. And so I told Wilma and uh, my wife and she said, oh, it's a sign, it's got to be a sign. And and as she does, she started looking in the ad mag. In those days, that's where you looked. And found a litter of border collies in Clay Cross near Chesterfield. And, um, and she phoned them up and off we went. Uh, we went to the farm, looked in, she said, here's the litter, and there, right in the middle of the litter, was a white border collie with a black face, and I said to her, that's the dog I saw in my dream, and she picked her up, and she said, come on, Angel, bang, that was the name. Mm -hmm. We brought her home, and Eva picked her up and didn't react to her at all, and never did, never reacted to her. It was amazing. I don't know why I don't know whether she'd grown out of it or what or whether there was something about the border collies for. An angel was a fantastic dog. She was beautiful, um, quite nervous, quite. Uh, some of them are very highly strung, but we loved her, and after we'd had her about a year and a half, we thought she could do with a pal, a companion, um, so we again looked in the ad mag and off we went to. Workshop this time, and we um, we found a black and white male border collie, and we brought him home. My mum thought we were nuts, um, and he turned out to be another fantastic dog, and um, we called him Gabriel. So we had Angel and Gabriel, <laughs> um, and Gabe was was the most solid of animals. The most solid of animal, animals. Actually, I'll read the piece that I wrote for him first, um, and and then, and then we'll we'll read the one about Jack. Um, so I wrote this in twenty ten. He he loved to in the morning. He used to sleep in our room against all the rules I know, and he'd lay on the floor. And then when it got to, about eight o'clock he would put his paws on the bed, thud them onto the bed and put his head on top of mine and look at me as if to say, OK, it's time to get up. I'm ready for my breakfast. I'm ready to go out. And uh, I used to love it. it was, it's just, in terms of being an anxious person and anxiety, I wasn't anxious actually when I wrote this poem, but when I did get anxious, he was fantastic. There was something amazing about the way they didn't react to me. Th- somehow they brought calm to me rather than taking on my anxiety. So this is called Gabriel. Gabriel. There is a thud as my dog Gabriel rises up from the ground and lumbers his front paws onto the arm of my chair. He leans his face into mine his bullet-headed friendship and tenacious fondness triumph over me. At once I drop whatever I am doing and pat him. Border black and white with brown eyes in my blue ones, and in his coat the lonely aroma of the sheep-filled hills, my monochrome friend, my running comrade, my core rendered in human form, his prone body down now next to my feet, his panting warmth on my toes, his breathing punctuated with hefty sighs as he dreams. The language of his paws on the ground of my heart addresses me from the green world, the gentle nature that pays the price of my living, begging me to listen. The language of his paws on the ground of my heart addresses me from the green world, the gentle nature that pays the price of my living, begging me to listen, begging me to listen. He he just had this incredible presence. And whether you have dogs or not, or you're frightened of dogs, or, or have never spent time with them, their friendship is worth the effort, uh, even if it's just to befriend somebody else's dog. Um, they have a connection with us that is deep and Gabe used to sit in when I used to do spiritual direction with people he would sit in the room and usually he'd start my feet and then if someone would get worried or upset or talk about something difficult he would go over and he'd lay at their feet and maybe put his head on their knee and they might stroke him and then they would calm down and he'd look at me and then he'd come back over to me and sort of sit down and he'd give, they, they'd do this great... <sighs> and he'd, it, it was as if to say, okay, he's okay now, she's okay now. I've, I've, I've sorted it. <laughs> um, And I know there's a huge amount of projection that we do. We anthropomorphize our animals, but this is beyond that. This is beyond projecting human emotions they are a little sliver of the wild we talk all the time at the moment about the world the natural world the need to to address it the world that pays the price of our living um, and the call of that wild world that we need to be rewilded a little bit or a lot um, that how good for our mental health walking in the green world is And I would certainly testify to that. And how important to make connections with natural beings, whether it's trees. I have a great friend, Belden Lane, who lives in the United States, who I've worked with on the men's work, who hopefully will be on the next podcast. Um, He's written some great books, The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, uh, the Great Conversation is his last book. It's really well worth reading. Uh, and, and, and he talks about a cottonwood tree across from his house that he goes and sits in. He calls it Grandfather. And he sits in its, in its embrace every evening. He's just turned 80 years old. Uh, and he says he's learned so much. We learn so much about ourselves from the natural world. So here is, inspired by Jack London, the the poem I wrote that that heralded the advent of little Jack that's laying on the bed now, he's gone to sleep. He sings a song of the younger world from The Call of the Wild by Jack London. I wonder if I have another dog in me, enough years to hold the truth that waxes from a small pup and fills out with still a streak of wild, and may, if I put in the hours, become my friend. I'm over 60, and still grieving the border collie that left us, succumbed to the arthritic pain slowing him into his grave, which we dug in our garden, where he lays always in the sun. I still have a border boy, merled with nervous blue eyes. His first six years have driven me hard, his fears of other dogs, lunging at horses, yet now he grows into his mother's curl round my leg, tenderly fused. Still, I yearn for another, black and white, farm-born, chosen from a soft-nosed litter, bred for work, that may outlive me. But is it selfish? I'd offer him my best energies, nurture myself for him, but his years could outlast mine. I do have an inheriting son, whose love for animals is echoed by them, returned in full measure. This may swing it, my need for the primal, to indulge my capacity for love, to be joined to the younger world, to hear the call of the wild, to hear the wild call once again, to hear the wild call once again.
1: Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast.
0: And I have succumbed, I have succumbed, and here he is, laying there, his little chest going up and down. He's asleep, his lovely paws, pink, little pink pads. And it does encourage me. I'd offer him my best energies, nurture myself for him. You know, he keeps me fit, I try and keep fit for him. and it's just that little um how, do, how did I say it uh, with a streak of wild it's that little streak of wild that they bring that that is is so good for us it's so good for us um to get out into that world into that wild world um to follow the great conversation as um, as Belden says it they are part of that conversation of instinct uh, it's been amazing watching him grow up because Arthur so the Merle that I'm talking about in the poem Arthur we met a couple of blue mills so they are the um, marble coated the, the Arthur is grey and black and brown and white um, with bright blue eyes. And we met a couple when we were on holiday in Cornwall. I thought, oh, I'd love one of those. And as Gabe was starting to get older, I uh, we got him. And right from the start, he was anxious. I've probably talked about this before, but he was really anxious. And no matter what we did, Every time he go out, he's wary of other dogs. He snarls at them sometimes. I took him to an amazing trainer who taught me how to handle him, um, how he needed to know what we asked of him. And he does it, but he's very anxious. Very anxious dog. Um, And it's all in his instincts. And so I was quite worried when we got Jack that he would pass this on to Jack. But again, they they're born with these incredible instincts that they get from their their parents, and and we met Jack's parents, and they were lovely dogs, um, and he is just so much more chilled. Um, when he's with Arthur, he, he's a bit more agitated. They sort of pass it on to each other, but like when he's on his own now, and when he's taken for what, he's just great. He's just, he's just got that inquisitiveness that border collies have got um and willingness to to approach the world uh, unlike Arthur with um with courage with um with joy so um I just wanted to talk about that really to to share how much joy and how much um companionship a dog can bring and it's taught me so much about myself um, it, it's it's taught me how to open up to a world that um, that calls to me that wild world that calls to all of us and I, I do think Some of our anxiety comes from being disconnected from that. It's a kind of natural reaction to be anxious the way we live. So disconnected from the natural world. One of the most anxiety-creating places is an airport. You couldn't get further from the natural world. And I remember someone who suffered from anxiety saying, well it's not surprising that people have panic attacks in airports um flying's stressful security's stressful all the lights all the people the levels of anxiety one of the things that i learned earlier on when i became really anxious my therapist said to me anxiety is sticky you know um you can trigger each other and that's been true in our family and certainly true um in places like airports. So, I I do think a lot of our anxiety is a, a, in some ways, the right reaction to these stressful environments. And, you know, social media, so much of it is, you know, I hear so many terrible stories about how people get bullied, how how younger people are obsessed with their image, um, and, you know, their Instagram, profile and these people come on who are influencers um whose whose pictures all look totally unnatural to me um and i know i'm sounding like an old bloke um but i do think and i you know i like instagram i like facebook um they they can have their uses I've, i've i've seen some lovely stuff there's a there's a whole thread called Border Collies Rock, um, just full of pictures of Border Collies. Um, you know, there's some good stuff, but it's also a bit frenetic. Um, our, our news media, everything is frenetic. And one of the great things about dogs is they're not. If 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 you allow them to be their instinctual selves, like Jack now, he's just out of it. He's asleep. Um because he's been for a walk, um, they they can be frenetic, you know. I board border collie. I read a fantastic book by a, a guy called James Rebanks. He um, he's a shepherd in uh, the Lake District, and it's called A Shepherd's Life, and it's it's a, partly about his love for his granddad, who was a shepherd his awkward relationship with his dad until he got older who was also a shepherd um, and how he learnt to love working in the fells in the Lake District and he talks a lot about dogs because you couldn't sheep farm without dogs there are places where a a quad bike will not go the only way to get the sheep down from the fells is a working dog and they say that, that the border collie will run five miles to the shepherd's mile so if a shepherd walks, you know, ten miles, the border collie runs fifty, and they are indomitable. They just they just keep running, uh, but they have control, uh, and 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 a dog knows how to stop, how to rest, and and they just sit and they they look out at the world, and there's something to deep deep to be learned from them. Um, I apologise if I've read this poem before, but this is uh, I'm going to read a couple of pieces just about uh, anxiety and um, and and what what getting out, especially on this summer solstice, this longer longest day, what that does for our souls, um, and and how important that is. Um, I'm just trying to find the piece now. Um, this is this is from the book that I wrote about my anxiety um, called A Night Sea Journey um, you'd think I'd know where it is by now but I don't um, I'll have to look at the table of contents uh, here we are 23 The Tremor of Silk it's called Jack's pricked his ears up the Tremor of Silk. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I learn by going where I have to go, said poet called Theodore Rothke. I can glean a seed of comfort from the breath panting, running, huffing happiness that Gabriel, my dog, finds in our long walk. It sets up a yearning that is painful to my stomach sinking, downbringing, drear morning, waking aching for more sleep. I never dreamed that I would be called anxious depressed an object of sympathetic card sending sad condoling nods I have never longed more or implored or burned for relief rescue to gain a vantage point that sees ahead an end to all this we are walking round the dam all three dogs are in full stream whereas i flood sporadically with the down the neck hot water panic Will it end, or am I stuck in this wet path, leaf-drop winter that issues into no spring as the raven-dark moor won't release me? I suppose dogs must get depressed, but Gabriel seems the steadiest of friends as he wanders ahead, licking the water, unfazed by my state. His unperturbed gaze is that seed, not relief, but the tremor of silk. It grows in his dark eyes and enters my belly silently. That's what I cling to. His smoothing generosity in the pain of my dislocation from the life I thought unshakable. His head on my knee, not hope, no, but it is love. His smoothing generosity in the pain of my dis. dis- Location from the life I thought unshakable, his head on my knee, not hope, no, but it is love. It is love. And that's what he brought, God rest him, to my most anxious time. That smoothing generosity uh, and that love. And I, I could never be more grateful to a being than I am to him for that. Um, it was it was a, a, a real grace, a real gift And I think there's a trust that builds in the poem I read um, about getting Jack, you know you build over time this uh, this this trust this love um, and you offer them your best energies you you know I wonder if I have another dog in me enough years to hold the truth that waxes from a small pup and fills out with still a streak of wild and may if I put in the hours become my friend may if I put in the hours become my friend and I've already put in, we have already put in lots of hours and there he is laying on the bed now, he's my friend and what more can you ask in life than the friendship of another being this poem, again I apologise if I've read it before but it's really appropriate an apposite to the whole theme of this podcast—it's appropriate to the Midsummer's Day, the idea of of a kind of magic. Um, my second poetry book was called Arriving in Magic. The, 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 what Jung called synchronicity. Those podcasts that I did a little while ago last autumn, on the cusp of two realms, where a lot of them that were about synchronicity, were about that. Uh, those moments in life where, where a whole lot of things come together and, and you have this sense of being addressed by something numinous, something beyond the rational, something of the spirit, if you like. And this poem is called The Lost Eden. And again, it's about the dogs, but it's also about that whole world that Midsummer Night's Dream is about. Um, If there's a story in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scripture, and that Christianity adheres to as well, that I think is seminal and, and profound, it's the story of Adam and Eve. The idea of Eden. You know, uh there's the eden project down in cornwall that is all about the rest- restoration of of the the natural world and the natural world being in balance the metaphor of eden this garden where human beings lived naked vulnerable and 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 in no way troubled by that they were able to be themselves that's part of what that metaphor of nakedness i think is about um this eden that where everything was in balance where human beings it says walked in the garden and god walked in the garden whatever you mean or don't mean by god but i think what that the scripture there means is you know the great spirit, what the Native American people refer to as the great spirit, um, the the if if you read Wind in the Willows, uh, there's an amazing little passage where they meet um, Pan, the great spirit of the forest, and they find the little otter that they've been looking for, and the 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 writer Graham Graham. I've forgotten his name now. Oh, Kenneth Graham says, they bowed their heads before this great spirit. The, the, the great spirit of nature, In he's still in churches. Um, he sort of crept in the green man. Um, Dylan Thomas talks about the force that drives the green fuse, that, that drives my green age. You know, it's this when we went into the technocratic world even the scripture lost its power to talk to us of this spirit of god as the as the creative animating force of the world and and they miss i, I from what my hebrew teacher told me there's a bit in the book of genesis where it says um God gave man dominion over the earth. And my teacher, God rest him, was called Robert Murray. He was a Jesuit. Uh, He spoke five, or read five ancient languages, including Hebrew. And he attested that the translation of that Hebrew word was not dominion. It was husbandry. It was guardianship. It was that idea that we were there to tend that Garden of Eden and work with it, not dominion over it. And that's where most of our mistakes have come from, that we somehow think that we're in control of it all, and that's our destiny. How wrong could we be? So that great story of Eden and and, uh, of the Garden of Eden and the creation of human beings, you know, okay, the idea that woman was taken from the rib cage of man, I'm not so sure of. Uh, that might be not a metaphor that works so well in uh, when we understand that we are equal. However, it also says, male and female, God created them in God's own image. God created us, male and female, so. Whatever else that story about rib cages and all of that is, there's certainly the 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 great declaration that whatever it is to be divine is expressed equally through men and women, through all men and women. Whoever they are, however they're made, whatever their orientation, whatever they choose to live out, they are an expression of the divine. And they're an expression, that whole story is an expression that there was somehow an original thing, an original innocence, an original balance that we have that we that we lose because we believe what? Well, in the story, the serpent there is no apple, by the way, the serpent says god says to Adam and Eve, Adam means Man of clay, man of earth, Eve is is Mrs. Life, the the giver of life. He says to them, you can eat of any tree in the garden except one, the tree of what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that fascinates me. I find that, you know, what, what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is that a bad thing? You know, if you listen to something like LBC, you'll always get someone phoning up and saying, the problem with young people these days is they don't know the difference between right and wrong. I taught my children the the difference between right and wrong. They need to learn morals. They need to know what's right and wrong. Well, they were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What? What? And what happens is, the serpent, who is the image and metaphor of the, of the twister of the truth, the liar, the, 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 the one that persuades you to do the things that are against your best interests, and that is a powerful archetype. We are surrounded by that archetype in our politics at the moment. People who persuade us to do things that are against our fundamental best interests. I'll leave it at that. He says, what did God told you that that, that, that this this would be bad for you? Of course it won't be bad for you. You will become like gods. You will become like gods and that's why God doesn't want you to do it. So off they go and they eat of it. Now to me, that metaphor speaks of something very powerful. It speaks of an idea that we can be the arbiters of what's right and wrong. That we know better than anybody else what's good and bad for us. Now, I'll just give you a small example of how wrong you can be. When I had my breakdown, I am the anxious poet after all. When I had my anxiety breakdown, I went to my Jungian therapist and it's at the beginning of the jingle of this podcast, and I said how terrible I was feeling, and she said, this could be the best thing that's ever happened to you. And I thought she was absolutely off her chump at the time, because it didn't feel in any way like the best thing that had ever happened to me. However, now, now I recognise that there is a deep truth in that, that I was heading on a path that really wasn't helping me And my unconscious pushed me off the horse. It knocked me off that path. And it made me reassess everything I was doing with my life. And I am so much more happy with my life now. But my initial reaction, I went to the doctor, give me pills, do anything to take this thing away. It is evil, it's bad. I was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and making up my own mind. And it was only as I did my therapy, as I listened to the deep voice of my unconscious, that I realized actually, this wasn't bad. This was actually good. This was a good dressed up in difficult clothes. And that happens to us so often. I think part of the not eating of the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to resist judgment, is to step back and say, okay, okay, I will, I, I, I will not judge this experience. I will hold on to it until it yields whatever fruit it has to yield. That's part of the whole story of Eden for me. Um, and, and it's how we discover this. It, it, I was reading a book about Jewish spirituality and, and they used the word Neshema. I think that's the word Neshema. And it means the pristine image of God in the soul. What Jung called the self. It's it's that archetypal depth. What Richard Rohr calls the immortal diamond. It's that pristine part of us that reflects the great natural depth and Creator. Uh, I'm struggling for words for it because I don't want to. I I don't want to sound. Like I'm peddling one particular version of that, but but that that pristine that, that that magic that we sense from synchronicity. So here here that was a flipping long introduction to reading a poem. Jack's even getting bored. Um here it is, The Lost Eden. Oh, and there's one more thing to say. My old Parish priest, Father May, was a Carthusian monk, and He told me this story once and I've never forgotten it and I'm sure I've told it before but it's worth telling again. When he was a Carthusian monk, most strict order in the Catholic Church, they live in little cottages in a quadrangle. They come out twice a day, once for mass, once for the office in the middle of the night and they they live alone, completely alone and they have a little garden in each of their cottages and uh, Jack, 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 come here boy. I'm going to have to let Jack out. He's decided he doesn't want to be on this podcast anymore. Give me a second.
1: Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast.
0: Okay. I've let him out. Um, Yeah, so they have little gardens and Father May had a monk next to him. He was in his mid, late 20s, early 30s maybe. The monk next to him was in his late 70s. And Father May used to think, I wonder what he does. You know, he's been here all his life. I wonder what he does. So he decided to shimmy up his big high wall and look over into the next garden to see what this monk next door to him. Was doing, and he said, Adrian, Adrian, I looked into the garden, and this is what I saw. He was, he tended this garden for years and years, it was a beautiful place, flowers and birds singing, beautiful. And he said, Adrian, that man was walking in the garden with God, he was walking in the garden with God. He had found the doorway to the lost Eden. He'd found the doorway to the lost Eden. I've never forgotten that story. Something in me woke up when he said that, that there is this doorway, there is this lost paradise. Paradise that we all have inside us and that we can all find out in the natural world. So here's here's my Lost Eden poem. I pull their leads on, full of begrudging. The rain is audible even through the door and the winter light is already fading. The young collie yanks the lead of my dissatisfaction, a reminder that I failed to attend to his daily training. We face the wind, heads leaning into the onrushing erosion of the blown wetness, seeming to deem us undeserving of any grace. Up the cloddy path, sticking to my boots, an indictment, each squelching step, another evidence of my poor progress. Coming around the stone-built cottages and up the general, funnelling the three dogs into a yelping clutter under my tetchy feet, Out of sorts, isn't that what they call it, when the world you find beats all the low expectations you carry into it? Then we reach the head of the valley, whittling the broken end of my tether, only to look up as the clouds break. The grey orb of the low sun gleams from behind the leaf-shorn beech tree, and we all stop as if music were playing. The lost Eden opens its generous gates to canine and human. We pass through into momentary, unsought beatitude. The lost Eden opens its generous gates to canine and human. We pass through into momentary, unsought beatitude. (laughs) was an amazing moment. It was really beautiful. And, and we did all stop. They all stood, three of them at the time, had Jess, that was my mum's old dog, Lily, her little Jack Russell we've still got, and Arthur. <sighs> they all looked. <laughs> In fact, no, it was Gabe, Jess and Arthur. I'd left Lily at home. And there were an untidy clutter right under my feet, but they just stopped. And it was, it was that moment of unsought beatitude, blessedness. And um, it was, I feel it, the, the, the emotion of it even now. And those are the moments that we look for. And those are the moments that the companionship of, of other beings, especially dogs can bring to us they they're aware of that in a way that i'm i'm not sure that we are until we start to switch on and they they're like a a helpful switch other animals birds do the same thing um tom and i have just booked i have this sense that i'm on a this threshold now between, I'm no longer middle-aged, I'm 62. There's no way I can call myself middle-aged anymore. And sometimes when people say to me, oh, how old are you? And I say 62, and, and then I'm like, oh, hang on, can we just have a recount? Because um, that can't be right. I don't feel 62, whatever that's meant to feel. I mean, when I was a kid, someone who was 62, my dad died when he was 63. So I'm old. Um, I'm not elderly yet, but I'm old, and there's adjustments that are going on in my body, uh, in my psyche, in 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 my in everything, everything, and and I want to sort of mark that, and and as I talked about in the sensitive souls podcast, Tom's going through his own transition. And, and we've decided, we've, we've scraped and we're trying to sell things and, and raise money to go to the United States. We've not been for a long time. And I, you know, I do have these compunctions about flying. We've not flown for a long time now. But um, we're going to go to the Midwest. Neither of us have ever been there before. We're going to Denver and we're driving up through Wyoming um, to the uh, Badlands National Park and then to Yellowstone National Park Grand Teton National Park ending up in Boise where Tom's friends live in Idaho um, but I partly wanted to go here to hear the call of the wild to go to a place where wild things still really live where bears live uh, I don't want to see one too close, uh, where wolves live. So wolves have been reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park. And you can see it on uh, National Geographic. They, it was done in the early 90s and it has completely, completely changed the ecosystem uh, to the point where it's changed the path of rivers, the course of rivers. And you think, what, well, wolves? Well, Because they're predators, apex predators, and the elk had no predator, the odd bear but not, not much, they're much more wary of going down to the rivers now. So the trees, the aspen trees and everything that grows there have grown now. That's encouraged the beavers to come back. The beavers have made dams and that's changed the course of rivers and made everything work better. Even the bears' numbers have gone up because there's more carcasses that the wolves leave of elk. The elk numbers have been controlled. Um, everything seems to have rebalanced. If you go on the National Geographic website, you can find videos about this. It's quite extraordinary, quite extraordinary. And and so uh, in Belden's book, The Great Conversation, he has a chapter about going to Yellowstone and, and not seeing wolves, but hearing them. Uh, so I hope that even if they're in some kind of... Um, rescue center or something that we might see wolves and bears and um and hear the call of the wild that great call that the native peoples of america that i've spoken of um always understood always understood that the settlers tried to understand some did some some dominated and thought that they had a manifest destiny to take over the place, which I completely don't believe. But, but we'll experience all of that. Um, again, we'll hear the call of the wild and hopefully that synchronicity, that, that sense of being addressed by a wider world and that we will experience ourselves and the transitions we're going through in the context of the companionship of other beings and the the companionship of the natural world. I want to finish with a poem that I wrote, and again in 2010, um, that I'm reminded of when we were talking about the idea of Eden, and the lost Eden, and recovering Eden. That's what's so great about... um, uh, That's what's so great about this whole climate change movement, Just Stop Oil, they are trying to recover Eden. And they might have methods that other people don't agree with, but that's what that's what it's all about. The recovery before we actually dis- destroy ourselves and destroy half the planet. The recovery of the right balance of Eden. The recovery of our place in the world. It's that wonderful line from The Wild Geese, Announcing to you, over and over, your place in the family of things. If we understood our place in the family of things, we wouldn't do half the things we do. I wouldn't even. You know, I don't mean even. That makes me sound like some great saint. I don't mean that at all. I'm pretty rubbish, actually, at that stuff. But, you know, constantly we're trying, as everybody is with us all, to... Right, that balance, um, we're swimming against a, a great tide, but uh, that's where we are, trying to re- recover Eden. And this is this is going back to that image of the um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's called No Such Thing as Right or Wrong. There is no such thing as right or wrong, good or bad, only wounds after blows, and then, with an allowing that forgives, a long walk to freedom. You may want to cling to black and white, but beware the ready stone that comes to hand when the sin is not your own. Remember, in Eve's blunder and Adam's stumble, the prescribed fruit cursed an awareness of bareness, self-justifying in the seeds and the flesh. That once-eaten harvest for them to huddle in the jungle, hiding from a gloaming breeze that longed to complete them. But if you can vow with the Bodhisattvas to be a Jesus, to save all breathing beings, if you can rule out right or wrong, good or bad, see the world as it is and forgive it, then you will find a sword raising within to unveil an opening. And as you walk in that garden, clutching your cracked spirit you will touch the gentle face of a tender evening. But if you can vow with the Bodhisattvas to be a Jesus, to save all breathing beings, if you can rule out right or wrong, good or bad, see the world as it is and forgive it, then you will find a sword raising within to unveil an opening And as you walk in that garden, clutching your cracked spirit, you will touch the gentle face of a tender evening. That idea that you may want to cling to black and white, but beware the ready stone that comes to hand when the sin is not your own. It's that metaphor of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. It's much harder to acknowledge our own darkness. But Jung said, you know, if you can acknowledge your own shadow, your own darkness, then you will make the world a better place. And the prescribed fruit cursed in awareness of bareness. When, when, when we cling to right and wrong, that we we are the arbiter of that, when the stone comes to hand easily, then it curses an awareness of bareness because we know deep down we're just the same. We're just as bad. We've done just the same sort of things. Or if we haven't, we're certainly capable of them. We've all been blind. We've all missed things. We've all not looked after the planet. So compassion, that once eaten harvest forced them to huddle in the jungle, they hid. God says, where are you to Adam and Eve? And they said, we hid. We hid because we were naked and he says how did you know you were naked and that's when he realizes they've eaten the fruit hiding from a gloaming breeze that longed to complete them the tender the the gentle face of a tender evening that's the force that wants to restore and complete us it's it feels to me like that's true that if we if we walk in the garden clutching our cracked spirits, then we will be touched by this force and we will find ways of living in that recovered Eden. Adrian, he was walking in the garden with God. He had found the doorway to the lost paradise. As an anxious poet, the doorway to the lost paradise has to be a good thing. So I wish you all on this Midsummer's Day and a Midsummer Night a Midsummer Night's Dream where you enter the lost paradise the lost Eden and that you find within yourself the sword raising the angel was posted at the door with a burning sword that you find that door and it opens and you can walk through. Uh, have have a Great Solstice. I'll speak to you soon. Hopefully the next one will be with Belden Lane. Um, the Solace of Fierce Landscapes is one of his books. You couldn't get a better title than that. And The Great Conversation. So I look forward to speaking to you then. Jack's just scratched at the door, so he wants, uh, he wants a walk again probably. So go well, and I'll speak to you soon.
1: Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast.